Good morning again. Welcome back. Glad you're here. I really mean it. I want to just say one more time, because we have guests all the time at True North, but I see a lot of people today that I have not had a chance to meet personally. Uh, we're glad you're here. We appreciate you reaching out, trying a new church, especially on a weekend that a lot of people uh, would probably prefer to be in a tent somewhere on a mountainside. We just appreciate you being here. I think that this morning's passage of scripture is going to be really relevant, regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey. Even if you would say you haven't started a spiritual journey, Jesus is going to speak directly to you. Uh, so I think it's a good Sunday to be here. It's a good kind of uh, cross-section of, of what Sunday mornings are like at True North, what we're about. And I hope that, uh, that that'll give you some clarity, because probably if you're new, you're probably church shopping a little bit, and maybe God will lead you to figure out if this is going to be a good church home for you or not. That's certainly our hope for you. So last week, we took a quick break from our expositional journey through the book of Mark. We've been going verse by verse. Uh, today will be our 15th sermon in this series since we started it last fall. And we have just now arrived at Mark chapter 4, so you can do the math on maybe how many sermons into this thing we're going to get by the time we finish chapter 18, but we're trying our best to treat each verse really seriously. We're not just doing one verse a week, we're trying to approach the stories of Jesus the way that they occurred. Uh, these sort of vignettes or instances where Jesus is teaching on a mountainside or he's out like he will be today in our passage on a boat teaching. And just try to understand, what is he doing? Who is he speaking to? What's happening around him in that world at that time? And then my responsibility to you is to try to help translate some of that, to sort of paraphrase that forward in time to us, and to help us understand if we were standing there while Jesus was teaching, what kinds of analogies and words would he use to us, and how would we maybe receive those and apply those to our lives? Last week, we took a break from that. We took sort of a detour, an off-ramp from the end of Mark chapter 3, where Jesus talks about his new spiritual family, a new eternal kind of family. And we talked about the church, because that's what Jesus is describing. He doesn't use that word yet. In fact, the word church, which comes from the Greek word ekklesia, doesn't come into play until after Jesus has already died, risen from the dead, and ascended after teaching his disciples for 40 days after his ascension. So it's just not a word that would be in Jesus or his disciples' vocabulary, but we have that word, and we look back and see that these early moments in Jesus' ministry, the first few months of him being on the scene and healing and teaching, this is the birthplace of what we call the church. And so when Jesus talks about a new family, an eternal kind of family, we assume, and rightly so, that he's describing what will become eventually the church. And therefore, last week, we tried to look at what a church is, what is the structure of a church, what has God done to protect and enrich and encourage and grow churches, and we wrapped up our time last week with the opportunity to ordain four new deacons to join our servant team here at True North Church. So that was a good time. Today, though, we're going to be back in the chronological order. We're going to be in the first 20 verses of Mark 4. So we'll start in Mark 4, 1. If you have a Bible, you can head that direction. I highly recommend that you do that. I'd love for you to see this on your own, whether it's a phone, a tablet, a scripture journal, a hard copy of the Bible, whatever you have. Maybe you've got the whole thing memorized, so just go there in your head, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. But it would be good for you to reference what it is that we're reading, because we're going to hear straight from the Master himself today. Some of the, the best and most important parts of the Bible are the ones where Jesus is speaking. Now, as you head that way in your Bible, I want to reset the scene a little bit, because we did take an off-ramp last week, and we're going back on kind of the highway of Mark today. And so I want to remind you what's going on. Uh, at the end of Mark 3, a lot of people have been following Jesus. There's this big crowd that goes with him everywhere that he is. Um, we don't know for sure because we aren't given a head count at this particular point in Mark's gospel. But it's sort of a common opinion if you were to go dig up a bunch of dusty old commentaries, which is part of my job, so I've done that this week. The common perspective among those commentators across the last 2,000 years of church history is that the crowd was never larger than it is right now. This is sort of uh, Jesus 
first album, if you are into the indie music scene. This is when he breaks out, okay? He hasn't hit his sophomore slump yet. That'll happen once he starts to teach some really hard truths about the kingdom of God. It's coming. But right now, it seems like everything that Jesus says, everybody's excited. Everything that he does, people are grateful. They're worshiping him in the same way that they would be worshiping God if God was in the flesh, because he is. He's Jesus. And so this big, giant crowd has begun to follow Jesus around, and it's a, it's a mixed bag of people. But the thing that they all have in common is that they show up and they either get what they want from Jesus or they realize that Jesus doesn't just exist to make their dreams come true. And either way, they go away. They either go away with that want satisfied. They got the cool teaching. They got the selfie for their Instagram feed. They got the autograph. They got the healing. Or they show up and realize that Jesus is not just a one-man circus, and that's disappointing enough to them that they walk away. But either way, they go back home. They don't stay. They don't follow. They aren't committed, and they're not prepared to become committed at all. Now, one step closer to Jesus within kind of these concentric circles is who we refer to as the disciples. You've heard me use the word apprentices. I think that's a better application of the, the way that this would have worked in Jesus' life. These are not just people who are following Jesus to hear him teach. They're not just there to be in the congregation or in the audience or in the classroom. They intend to emulate him. They want to learn the trade of how you love and live with God. That's their experience. The thing that sets them apart from the crowd are that these disciples have decided to continue to follow Jesus, not just his teaching, but his example in order to become like him. The disciples intend to put Jesus' teaching into practice, whereas if you step out one ring to the crowd, they don't really. They don't want to put any of Jesus' teaching into practice. They want to hear it. They want to benefit from it. They want it to make them feel really good, and then they want to move on. That's their intention. Within that ring of disciples or apprentices, there are 12 Often we refer to them as the 12 disciples, but there's a lot more than 12 disciples in the New Testament. There are, there's anywhere from two on the very first day that Jesus calls Andrew uh, out, and possibly uh, one of the Jameses comes along for the ride as well, and there's two disciples by the end of that day, all the way to a point later in Jesus' ministry where there are hundreds of people who have committed themselves to following him as best they can, and they don't know it yet, but they can only succeed with the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of whom Jesus purchases when he dies on the cross for the sins of of mankind. These 12 disciples are maybe better referred to as 12 apostles. The Greek word apostolos means that they were sent, that Jesus isn't just calling them to himself, but he's going to use these 12 men whom we studied about a month ago to start all of the first churches. The first network of local churches will be born from the ministry influence of these 12 nobodies, 12 people that Jesus selected, called out, made eye contact with, treated like human beings, and has led and trained and will continue to do so for the next two and a half years of his life until his three and a half year ministry is over. And then, of course, at the focal point of all of this is Jesus himself. Now, I'm reminding you of this because we're going to join these people. We're going to join this crowd, these disciples, these apostles, and Jesus himself again at the shore of the Sea of Galilee today. Jesus has just had a marathon day where he has been healing people. He was out at the sea early in the morning, then back at Peter's house that afternoon where he was so crowded with people that he couldn't even eat. His family came and tried to get him. He made some shocking comments about who his mother and brothers are. Uh, and now he's headed back out in the evening to the edge of the Sea of Galilee to teach once again. Now we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of Mark chapter 4. I want to give you just a note that the translation that you're going to see on the screen today is not the ESV. Uh, that's the one that you have if you have a scripture journal. It's typically the one I preach from. As I was looking through different translations this week, the New English translation does a few things that I think are a little bit better than the ESV. Every translation has its flaws. I'm not here to pick on any one of them, but just know if this doesn't exactly match the language of what you're reading, that's okay. It's the same story, and the point remains the point. So, Mark chapter one, Mark, excuse me, Mark chapter four, beginning here in verse one. 
Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake, or what we would call the Sea of Galilee. Such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the lake, and he sat there while the whole crowd was on the shore next to the lake. He taught them many things in parables. Wherever you see parables in the Bible, you can insert the word stories. These are stories with a lesson, with a point, like allegories or analogies or illustrations that people use when they speak to us today. He taught them many things, and as part of his teaching, he said to them, verse 3, listen to me. Of course, they're all already listening, so this is kind of a rhetorical device. He says, listen, a sower or a farmer went out to sow or to plant. And as he sowed, some of the seed, because the way that you sow in Jesus' day is you have a bag of seed on your hip, and you take a handful, and you throw it out across the across the um, rows of your field. So you throw a handful and you kind of walk rhythmically. There's a way to do it where you make sure that the seed spread is really even. So everybody there has seen a man do this before in their life. This is very common knowledge to them. It's as if Jesus said, imagine someone checking out your groceries at the grocery store. We would always go, oh, we'd be like, yeah, I've seen that That's a million times in my life. Similar to what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, imagine a sower and he's throwing the seed. And as he does, some seed fell along the path. And what happened to that seed? Birds came. And they devoured it. They ate the seed. Other seed fell on rocky ground where there was not much soil. You can imagine shallow dirt on top of stone. This seed sprang up at once because the soil was not deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched. And because it did not have sufficient root, it withered. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up, and they choked the seed. And it did not produce any grain. But other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, sprouting and growing. Some yielded 30 times as much, some 60, and some 100 times. And then he said, whoever has ears to hear had better listen. I like that. I like what the NET does there because it's imperative. He's not just saying, hey, if you want to tune in, he's saying, if you're able to hear these words, they're going to be important for your life. Basically, the only prerequisite to find yourself in the story Jesus tells is, do you have ears on your head or not? If you do, this applies to you, is what Jesus is saying. And everybody's kind of going, geez, Jesus, I don't know. This is kind of the first time he, I mean, just earlier today, you picked on your mom. Now you're saying maybe we should, I don't know, this feels like you're kind of pushing us around a little bit. This is the beginning of Jesus leaning in a little bit. And I think this is the reason why most scholars and commentators agree that Jesus' crowd, this big group of people that comes and goes, was never larger. Because starting now, starting this evening at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus begins to point his finger at sinful people and say, you have problems. Now, they know they have problems, just like we all know we have problems, but still, it's offensive for someone to tell you that you have a problem, right? You're like, I know, I have my own problems. I own a mirror, okay? I'm not perfect, I know that about myself, but as soon as you start to tell me that I'm not perfect, now, now I'm defensive, now I'm threatened, now I'm angry, and I can just feel, can't you, as you're watching this scene develop, that this, this crowd starts to shift a little bit, and these people are maybe going, yeah, it, it is starting to get late, you know, we got to get back to Bethsaida, it's a pretty long walk, we'd hate to be waylaid by bandits on the highway, you know, people are just kind of starting to pack up their lawn chairs and tell their kids, stay quiet, but as soon as he prays, we're out of here, we're not going to stay for whatever's next. Jesus is starting to rub people a little bit the wrong way. Now, what's interesting is you and I know who Jesus is, right? I mean, for the most part, you're in a church. You probably have some idea that Jesus is God or that's at least what Christians believe. Maybe if you're not a Christian, that's okay. But the people who are watching Jesus teach, who are listening, they still don't really know who or what they're dealing with. They've seen this man have power over demons. They've seen him have some new insight into what a family is supposed to be. He's called to himself lots of disciples. 
He's done very little teaching about how a disciple ought to live, but he himself has been an example. He's been gracious, merciful, and kind to people who don't fit, who are outcasts, who have some sort of social or or uh, sociological stigma about them. Maybe their body doesn't work or their mind doesn't work or they're of the wrong class or the wrong color to fit in in Jesus' world. And yet he welcomes them. He doesn't just break down those barriers. He disregards them. They don't exist to him. People are people, and so he invites anybody who will to come. This is a very welcoming and inclusive thing to begin with. But now Jesus seems to be communicating that some of the people who are present have something to do with plants that get choked by thorns who is Jesus talking about? Who does he have in mind as he looks at this group of people? This is where I'm saying you and I have an advantage because we understand that as Jesus teaches in parables, he's trying to give us some kind of application about humanity. I don't think these people have any idea what he's talking about. I think he just went from talking about stuff that they could understand, like how to have a good relationship with your family or how to get along with your spouse, to all of a sudden now he's saying, you know, one day a man went out and he sowed seed into the ground. And people are like, yeah, it happens like every day where we live. What are you talking about? Why does this matter? And he's like, well, some of it fell in a place where uh, birds came and ate the seed. And they're like, yeah, that all, every day. I don't know. What's this? What are you talking about? And Jesus is like, well, and also some of the seed fell in a place where there wasn't a lot of dirt. And so the root couldn't go down. And people are like, yeah, we know how roots work. Like we're an agrarian society. We understand you have to grow crops to eat. Not really sure where this is headed. And then Jesus says, and finally, there are some seeds that were choked out by thorns. And people are thinking, well, not if the gardener's a good gardener. He knows how to rip the root out of that thorn bush. Otherwise, it wouldn't do that. But I still don't really understand what we're talking about. And finally, Jesus says, and sometimes when a gardener throws seed down, um, it grows. And then plants grow. So listen up. And yeah, and they're going, to what? <laughs> is the, are, we, is this, are we reading Ben Franklin's almanac out loud, Jesus? What are we doing? Is this part of the thing, or is, are you on a lunch break? Are we supposed to talk amongst ourselves? We don't really know. Is this only a lesson for farmers? It's so obtuse. This is such a hard saying for these people to understand that even Jesus' disciples, even the people who have committed to follow him, have no idea what he is talking about. So here's what I want to do for you today. I want to help you understand that Jesus, looking out at the edge of the shore of the Sea of Galilee, sees all kinds of different people. He sees people who are skeptical of him. There are people in that crowd whose only intention is to prove him wrong and to try to protect their family from what they perceive to be some kind of religious or cultural threat that Jesus represents. There are people in the crowd who have no idea who Jesus is. They are naive. They are totally confused. And this story doesn't seem to be helping them make their minds up very well. There are others in the crowd who are loyal. They would do anything, but they just don't know how to understand what Jesus really wants from them today, right now. How could they decipher that? How could they figure that out when Jesus is talking about birds eating seed off the hard-packed earth? What Jesus is doing, and we shouldn't be surprised, is he's looking at a crowd of people that's incredibly diverse in the perspectives that they bring to the table, and so he decides to tell a story about lots of different kinds of people. That's what's going on in the story of the soils. Now, we don't know that yet. The reason I told you we're going to read through verse 20 is Jesus is about to have a short private audience with just his disciples, and he's going to explain to them what he means. And he'll even tell us why he's using a story to try to teach a lesson that's already kind of hard to wrap our minds around. But for the sake of you following Jesus where he's headed in this story, I'm going to ask you to hold two short lists either in your mind or to take these down as notes somewhere so that you can reference them when we get to the end of today's teaching. So the first list is short. It's three things, and it's something you've already heard and seen. We looked at it even earlier today, 10 minutes ago. It's that we're talking about three categories of people. That's list one. There's Jesus himself, 
there's the crowd, and then there's his apprentices. I know when I did those concentric circles, I broke the apprentices into two groups. I said that the apostles are within. But for the sake of the story, everybody who's following Jesus, whether they're part of the 12 apostles or the hundreds of those who've committed themselves to Christ but maybe are not in the inner circle, they stand on even footing. They're the same for the sake of the argument that Jesus is making. So that's the first list. It's easy. Jesus, the crowd, the apprentices. You might not even have to write that down because you've heard it the last couple of weeks. But then we have to draw out the metaphor. The story that Jesus tells, excuse me, involves a main character, a bunch of seeds, and a lot of different kinds of soil. So here's the second list, and this one would be worth writing down. It's going to give you the opportunity to take this kind of obtuse story that depends on you and I having some general working knowledge of how a farm functions, which most of us probably don't. Most of us probably grow rhubarb, which basically grows itself here. That's kind of as far as we, we try not to grow rhubarb at my house, and we still grow rhubarb. So that's kind of our experience. Uh, Jesus needs us to have a little bit more insight into the way that a seed works when it falls into soil. So here is who he's talking about. There's a farmer. That's the main character. The farmer holds in his bag on his hip some seed. Jesus will tell us who that farmer is and what is that seed that he's talking about. That's really important for us to grasp. Then he's going to talk about four different kinds of soil. He'll talk about soil that's been packed so hard by busy feet that it's become like a road, hard enough to walk upon. It doesn't even get muddy when it rains. That's how tightly packed the earth is. Then he's going to talk about rocks. What happens when seed falls on rocks? What are those rocks, and how does the seed respond? Then he'll speak about thorns briefly, and he'll help us understand what thorns are supposed to mean in the story that he told. And then finally, he finishes with the easy part, the good soil. The soil that when it receives the seed knows what to do with it, can turn that seed into something that bears fruit to use his words 30 or 60 or 100 times over. That sounds good, and it will sound even better once you understand who the farmer and the seed are and how this thing is supposed to work. So those are the two lists, because here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to introduce a new concept in just a second. He's going to talk about something that I talk about all the time, but he hasn't actually said out loud yet. And as soon as he does, he's going to take that first list, and he's going to try to connect it to the second list and answer the question of what is the kingdom of God. That's really where he's headed today. He hasn't said that yet. As I said, he's being very obtuse. In a minute, he'll explain why. We should let him speak for himself. So if you have those things written down, let's come now to verse 10 of Mark chapter 4. As Jesus ends his day, he's alone with the 12 apostles, and he begins to explain what in the world he was talking about when he was teaching about soil from the, from the boat on the shore. So when Jesus was alone, we can assume that the crowd has all either set up tents or wandered back to wherever they came from, and they'll be back in the morning. Those around him with the 12, so this is the disciples, that sort of uh, ring right outside Jesus, plus the 12 apostles themselves, they asked him about the parables. Now, that's more than one. The only one Mark records is this particular story about soil and seed. But he says more than one time in this passage that Jesus is using lots of stories to teach similar lessons about what's going on in the kingdom of God. So they said, Jesus, what have you been talking about today? What are these stories supposed to mean? Are they allegories? How do we interact with these concepts? Is this mythology? Are you trying to tell us about God or yourself or the Hebrew Tanakh or the Torah or, or Old Testament history? What is happening here? And Jesus says to them in verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. That sounds really important, right? If I have a grocery list that my wife and I make together, this is how it works at our house. On Mondays, I go to Costco, then I go to cars, then I go home, 
okay? And we have a grocery list. We use it. We both have iPhones, so we have a, a note in there that we share. We put stuff on the fridge during the week, and then we transfer that into the note, and then I take the note with me to the store, and then I call my wife 9,000 times while I'm at the grocery store because I don't know. If it just says corn, I'm like on the cob in a can, frozen in a bag. Should it already be cooked? How much do we need? Are we planting corn? Are we eating corn? I'm not sure what we're supposed to do. Are we going to be popping it? Does it go in a bag to heat up when our tummy hurts? I don't know. What is the so, so in the same way, if I were to call my wife and say, hey, I saw that you put corn on the shopping list. What does that mean? And she said, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. I would be like, I think we have different Bibles. I want to find your Bible and get you a real Bible that tells you what the kingdom of God is actually about. So this is what's happening. These guys are asking a regular old question. They're going, I don't know what this means. They, they're not asking for deep spiritual insight. They don't think that's what's about to happen. They think that Jesus is going to try to make sense of this story he told that, frankly, because he's their rabbi, they assume it's their problem that they don't understand. They're not thinking Jesus is this hard-to-understand guy. They're going, man, he is, I should have stuck with fishing or I should have stuck with tax collecting. This is over my head. This is out of my pay grade. I don't know what this has, like, what is going on. We were just kicking demons out of people last week, and now it's seed, and, the, like, Jesus, are we pivoting? Is this like a farming startup now? I don't know what we're doing. And Jesus says, I've given you the secret. The mystery is another way that other translations lay this out for us, that something is going on with the kingdom of God that nobody has been able to understand all this time. Later in the New Testament, and I don't have time to quote these for you, but you can look them up, maybe do a little cross-reference study for yourself this week. It's a great way to spend your day off tomorrow if you want to do that. But you can look up the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul uses that phrase over and over again in the New Testament. And he explains the mystery to mean that the kingdom of God is for anybody who wants to love God and follow Jesus. You see, the men who are sitting there with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, they just pulled his boat in by the rope, and they're going, what was that about? Jesus, what are you talking about? These men still expect that Jesus is only there to take care of the Jewish people. He's only there for the Israelites, for the Hebrews. He's come to validate them, to set them free from Roman oppression. And so when he says the secret of the kingdom of God has to do with all kinds of people, that's what he's about to explain, this is the beginning of a major shift for these men who've been trying to follow Jesus with their lives. Now, it's also notable, I think, that when Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of God here in verse 11, what we just read, that this is the very first time that Jesus uses that phrase in Mark's gospel. So I want to show you something in a second that's important, but let me finish this passage through verse 13. So he says, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those who are outside, everything is in parables. Now, that's a little challenging because it seems like a big crowd has been following Jesus, but here's what he's saying. If you don't come to me for me, if you aren't interested in following me, if you're not looking for a way into the kingdom of God, even if you don't know that wording, like maybe that's not a phrase you would use, but if your heart's desire is not to be in right relationship with God, Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what I say, it's all going to seem like riddles and smoke and mirrors to you. It's only going to seem like stories. There won't be a profound idea at the center that leads you further into this kingdom. He says, although that they may look, excuse me, so that although they look, they may look but not see. Although they hear, they may hear but not understand. So that they may not repent and they may not be forgiven. Now we have to be careful because you can read this as if Jesus is saying that that's the plan. The plan is for these people to not understand. The plan is for them to be befuddled or confused or unsure of what Jesus means. That's not the case at all. Again, I don't have time to read it to you. But in the parallel passage from Matthew chapter 12... Matthew adds a little bit more to what Jesus says here, and he goes on to explain that to those who have been given a little bit of God's truth, 
they have the opportunity, if they can just hold on to that, to gain more and more and more. But to those who have been given a little bit of God's truth, maybe to use Jesus' analogy, a seed, but they've rejected it, they've denied it, they've walked away from just the tip of the iceberg of what it means to be in God's kingdom, God does not continue to just berate them. God doesn't unload more and more harder and deeper truths onto a person like that. He keeps the focus on that first little principle. Maybe for you it's just the idea that there is sin, that there is some kind of moral standard in the world. Maybe that idea is too oppressive, too demanding, and too controlling, and so you've never taken a step past that in your faith journey. Maybe for you, it's that bad things happen to people that you think are good people, and you can't imagine how a God who is just or merciful could exist and allow a system to propagate itself that takes advantage of people who have pure hearts or good motives. But for many of us, we reach a point where God reveals a little bit more of what's going on. That box that he's in, we let it get a little larger, and we realize he can do more than we thought, he's bigger than we thought, he's stronger than we thought. And some of us, we hit one of those truths, and we just stop, and we go, ah, this isn't going to work for me. I don't like this. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm not sure how this could be true. This goes against my sense of morality, and so therefore, I'm going to hold up my standard as more important than the one that comes to us from God's word, from the Bible. Jesus is not communicating it's his intention to confuse anybody for the sake of their own damnation. Jesus is saying that for some people, they will encounter a small truth that will cause them to pull the emergency brakes and stop following, and they should not expect to continue to receive more and more insight. God will wait there with them at that crossroads until they reach a point of surrender and say, okay, God, maybe I don't understand, and maybe I don't like this at all. I'm a pastor, and there are things that I am not in love with about the way that God does things in the world, but I trust him. I'm in love with him, and so I can trust what he does and believe that eventually the outcome will make sense and his timing will be what is best and right for the world because he's never shown himself to do anything but that in human history. Jesus is, again, I just want to be so clear, he's not saying that he wants to confuse anybody and keep them out. He's saying some people will be so hurt, so frustrated, so confused that they will refuse to take another step forward. But his point is this. For his disciples, they've not reached that point. They've not hit that block. They're not saying, I can't follow you any further. And therefore, Jesus is saying, look behind the curtain with me here. The story that I told you is about the kingdom of God. I'm explaining to you as we're sitting in this boat looking at thousands of people on the shore, and you're trying to understand which of these people is trustworthy, who's loyal, who's going to give to our cause, who's going to follow us. Jesus is saying, here's the way you can know. The parable, the story of the kinds of soil is insight into what happens when people encounter Jesus. What are all the different ways they can go when that happens? That's what Jesus is trying to say. He goes on in verse 13 saying, don't you understand this parable? Then how, if not, will you understand any parable? So I said this to you a second ago, but I want to clarify again. When Jesus introduces the language of the kingdom of God, he's doing sort of step three in a three-part process. Initially, he built a following. He's a rabbi. That's to be expected. He has disciples. Two weeks ago, we saw him pivot those followers into family. That was unprecedented. No rabbi usually does that, where they say, hey, all these people that I don't know that aren't really my biological relatives, they are now, in a sense, replacing my mother, my brothers, my sisters. And also, any of you can do that. Any of you can become like family to me if you love and obey God, my Father. Now Jesus has taken that family, and he's placed it in a kingdom. He's explained that it's not just a following he's building. It's not just a family that he's creating. There is a kingdom coming, and he is preparing a people for that kingdom, which sounds a little bit Old Testament, because this is what God has been doing all along. 
He's been building a people for himself through which he will redeem and reconcile humanity and the remainder of creation. So those two lists exist. Here's why I wanted you to memorize those, or at least write them down. Maybe not memorize, but hold them in your head. Is Jesus is going to take that first list, himself, the crowd, his apprentices, and he's going to try to use the second list, the types of soil, the seed, the farmer, to explain what's going on behind the curtain in the kingdom of God. So look at verse 14, and let's let the rabbi teach. He says, the sower sows the word. So the sower, in this case, would be Jesus, but could be anybody who decides to sow the word of God, meaning sharing the truth that God reveals about himself and the way the world works to anybody who will listen. So that means right now, I'm doing my very best to throw out seed as best I can. I do this every Sunday that we meet, that I'm up here on this stage. Your life group leaders do this when you're in life group. You do it for each other when you highlight scripture or point people who are struggling, who don't know what's true, who don't know how to feel or how to act. Back to Jesus' example, back to the scriptures. You scatter the seed of the word. And so the point that's applicable for you and I is that Jesus is, in this particular story, both the farmer and the seed. And so when we think back through what is he talking about, there's a, a sower who sows, he's describing himself. He starts at the center of that circle, and he says, here's what I'm doing, and here's who I am. And now let's move out one ring, and let's talk about what's going on outside of that circle. So that's what verse 15 is telling us. It's the first category, that there are ones on the path where the word is sown, and whenever they hear, Immediately, Satan, so that's who Jesus was talking about when he described the bird, when he told the story the first time. Satan comes and snatches the word that was sown into them. In the case of the soil on the road, this represents the hard-packed, dry, and almost concrete-like condition of the hearts of many people. The road is the hardened hearts that exist in that crowd around Jesus. The crowd comes and goes. Have you ever wondered why? One of the reasons that they go is because the seed of the word hits hearts that are hardened and it doesn't take root and it doesn't bear fruit and they get frustrated. Or something happens where God's enemy, whom Jesus names as Satan here, he swoops in with a distraction or a worry, an anxiety or a fear that quickly pulls you away from that seed before it can sink down because your heart is hard. Because something has happened to you that has caused you to reject the word of God as not true, outdated, bigoted, tainted. There's some perspective you have that causes the word of God to come to you as poison instead of life-giving. And that's not what it does. In function, it always gives life. But something has happened that has caused your perspective to change. And Maybe it's wounds. Maybe it's abuse on behalf of a person who was supposed to represent Jesus. The point is this. Jesus is giving a warning to some of us who have reached a point of hardness that even exposure to the word doesn't really make a big difference. There's some tilling to be done for that hard soil to be turned back into fertile ground. And I'm not recommending that you go home and till your own heart or have anybody else till it for you. I'm recommending that you go to the farmer and you say to him, I think things are a little hard in here and that seed isn't really getting in. And then you open yourself to him in the same way that you would not invite a stranger off the street to come into your garden and rip up all the plants you've been working on. You ought not go to just anybody else with your trauma willy-nilly and ask them to jump in and fix it for you. You should bring those deepest wounds, those hardest parts of you, to the farmer, to the master, to Jesus, and have him with his gentle hands and his expertise and his mastery of time and seasons and your biology and everything else that's in play work with you in his timing, at his pace, to open you back up again, because the word will bear fruit. 
and where it doesn't, that's not the word's fault. It's proof that we are people who can change, and one of the ways we can change is we can become hardened. And thankfully, another way that we can be changed is God can undo that in us too. And we can reopen ourselves to what God is doing and what his word says. Now, to not miss the analogy, I think the main emphasis from Jesus here seems to actually be busyness, which is interesting. Because I think in the 21st century, you and I are far busier than anybody was in Jesus' day. We have less and less margin every decade than the decade before. Our parents are totally removed from the speed at which we communicate and live online and in each other's lives constantly, yet still somehow isolated. The reason that Jesus alludes to hard-packed earth has to do with farming in a way that probably most of us don't know. When you farm, you don't have big machines and tractors like modern uh, mega farms have today, uh, industrial farms. In Jesus' day, you walk, right? You walk and throw seed. I told you that. Well, you walk the same route every day in the same way that there are paths and trails up mountainsides that people have cut with their boots and shoes here in Anchorage. In Jesus' day in Israel, there were hard-packed routes through the fields that people walked on specifically for a number of reasons. One, if you have to ruin some of the field, you only want to ruin a little bit of it so you can plant in the rest. Two, if it does rain, you want that earth to stay hard-packed because you don't have mud boots, you can't throw your extra stuffs on in AD 35 and get out in the field. You're still in sandals or possibly barefoot, so it's nice to have somewhere to walk. You also need a way to lead your animals through the field so that they don't destroy and eat all of the crops that you've planted. So here's what happens. You walk so fast the same route over and over again that you pack it down. And I think part of the point that Jesus is making here, part of the emphasis of his metaphor, is that some of our hearts have become tightly packed because of how busy we are, because of how fast our feet are always moving, always on the go from one thing to the next. No margin, no room for error, no sense of self-reflection, no room to dwell with the God who is present. The first part of the story of the soils is a warning for those of us who are on the go nonstop, who make no time for contemplation, who never think about the spiritual side of their life or faith. Now, there is a solution to this kind of living, but Jesus isn't there yet, so let's keep reading. Look at verse 16. These are the ones who were sown on rocky ground. As soon as they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves, and therefore they do not endure. And then, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, immediately they fall away. Again, Jesus is picturing this crowd that he's been speaking to. That's who he told the story to. He knows the hearts of some of the people who are sitting on the shore, and he's thinking, some of you are shallow soil. You might even be considered a disciple by the other disciples, but you and I both know that there's no root in play, and therefore we should have very low expectations of you making it in the long run. Specifically, the soil that sits on the rocks represents the shallow, one-dimensional, what I might call faith light of the hearts of many people. Again, there's an element of farming in play here. Much of the soil in Israel sits on uh, limestone bedrock, just a couple of inches underneath the dirt. And oftentimes when a farmer would buy a field, before he would buy that field, one of the very first things he would do is dig in that field. This is part of the reason why later Jesus tells a parable about a man who's digging in a field he doesn't own. You may have read that parable before and thought, there's this guy and he finds a treasure buried in a field. What is he doing digging in somebody else's field? We know he doesn't own it because he has to sell everything he has to go and buy the field to get the treasure. Well, yeah, you would dig in the field too. That's part of the field inspection process, if you will. If someone is selling a vineyard, they might have a bunch of shallow dirt where very quickly they've been able to plant seeds and grow something that looks good across the last couple of weeks. You want to know when you move in and you take over that piece of land, will your crops grow or will they wither when the sun comes out? So common practice was to dig just a little bit below the surface and see what's down there before you would purchase something that would cost you so much money. 
in this particular instance, Jesus is describing a place that is shallow. It doesn't have the depth to sustain the life and bear the fruit that the seed of God's word wants to bear in the lives of people. In Jesus' story, the seed falls on soil like that, and because the shallow soil holds a a concentration of moisture and nutrients, the seed seems to do well at first. This is a person jumping into a healthy church and seemingly assimilating overnight. Immediate change. Everything's different. They're on fire. Everything's going to be done. There's There's no more sin in their life ever again. Maybe they're even called to ministry, even though they weren't a Christian 20 minutes ago. It's sprinting ahead. And it can be impressive, and it can be overwhelming. If you're new to to, to seeing people be converted, you can think, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And I would say every great once in a while, God does do that. Just like that, addictions end. Just like that, there's a 180-degree turn, there's no looking back, and the sky's the limit. But unfortunately, most of the time, when that seed bursts that quickly, as Jesus says, the tribulations of the word come, people begin to be angry with this person because they're a Christian, This person realizes that following Jesus is oftentimes as much challenge as it is a blessing, and they wither, and they go, I don't want it. If the blessings from heaven aren't just going to flow and flow and flow, if the emotional high that I'm riding isn't going to be here 24-7, then I'm out again. This is frequently the case in many modern churches. The reality sets in of a life lived in Jesus' name in a world that wants nothing to do with Jesus. And in response, some will turn around and run in the opposite direction. Their faith, though it may have sprouted quickly, is not interested in anything other than what God can do for them. And so therefore, when they realize there's more to it than that, they tend to turn around and walk away. So I want to read you a quick quote from a guy named Helmut Thielich. He was a German Lutheran. He's one of the real Lutherans. American Lutherans aren't real Lutherans. The Germans are real Lutherans, okay? This guy was serious. He published a book in the 70s called The Waiting Father in which he describes the kind of people that Jesus characterizes as what I'm calling the rocks. So listen for this, and especially listen for this. This is so interesting. 50 years ago, this guy is hinting at what we would call the deconstruction movement. Very interesting how he seems to understand what happens in the life of a person who eventually walks away from their faith. Helmet says this, There's nothing more cheering than transformed Christian people, and there's nothing more disintegrating, or you could say discouraging, than people who have been merely, quote-unquote, brushed by Christianity. People who have been sown with a thousand seeds, but in whose lives there is no depth and no root. Therefore, they fall when the first whirlwind comes along. It is the half-Christians who always flop in the face of the first catastrophe that happens because their dry intellectuality and their superficial emotionalism do not stand the test. So even that which they think they have is taken away from them. This is the wood from which the anti-Christians also are cut. Anti-Christians are almost always formerly half-Christians. A person who lets Jesus only halfway into his heart, is far poorer than a 100% worldling. That's not a word we use, but a person who would reject Jesus outright. Helmet says this person does not get the peace that passes all understanding because they're not a Christian, but they also lose the world's peace because their naivety has been taken from them. The same could be said not only of people who have maybe an emotional high that leads them into this halfway way of following Jesus, but, but also people who follow Jesus only with their minds, what Helmet refers to as, quote, dry intellectuality. That's no better than a person who's just riding the emotional roller coaster of a big church service that feels nice. It could also be said that those who only practice Christianity with their bodies, a kind of asceticism, which leads to self-righteousness, law-keeping, that eventually becomes as spiritless 
as those who are themselves self-righteous. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're only applying your mind, if you're only applying your spirit, if you're only trying to follow the law with your body and your actions, that's shallow soil. You have to open all of yourself. You have to give all of yourself over to Jesus and receive the word into yourself and trust that it will take root and it will bear fruit. Okay, then in chapter, excuse me, verse 18, uh, Jesus says this, Others are sown among thorns. There are those who hear the word, but worldly cares and the seductiveness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and they choke the word out. And as a result, it produces nothing. This is Jesus saying that the soil among the thorns is a symbol for the self-deceiving way that many of us live. We entertain sins and vices that devour us from the inside out while we live totally disassociated from the consequences of our actions. Now, it's interesting in Jesus' story, the thorns are not immediately visible. They're not obvious coming up out of the ground right away. The farmer doesn't say, oh, there's some thorns. Here's some seed to compete with those thorns. The thorns are missing. They're below the surface. This implies that they have been cut down or burned out, but the root has never been removed. And so the seed lands in a place that looks like fertile ground from the outside. It looks like the kind of soil you would want to throw seed onto if you were a farmer, and yet there's something under the surface that given enough water and sunlight and time will outgrow the word, the seed, and will choke it out so that it bears no fruit in the life of that person at all. The implication is vivid, right? That the seed of choking thorns has been allowed to remain. The root of choking deadly thorns has been allowed to remain in this farmer's field. What can do something like that to a person? Jesus says there are three categories, three kinds of things that lead us to deceive ourselves, to tell ourselves that cutting off the top of the thorn bush is good enough. It's good enough. I can't see it anymore. No one else can see it anymore. It's not immediately causing me pain. It's probably gone. It will probably never come back again. Jesus says that our short-term worries, our lust for financial gain, and our own selfishness lead us to leave the root in the ground. A person like this may make some moves toward following Jesus, but the fear of what could happen in the next few days or weeks or months will pull that person back inside themselves in the name of self-preservation. And here's where it's at its most insidious, is when that self-preservation is avoiding the consequences of something that you know full well you should not be doing. And not in a, God is wagging his finger at you from heaven and he's so disappointed and here comes a time out for you. In a, it is literally destroying your life and the lives of people around you. And you continue to go down into the dungeon in the basement of your heart and feed that dragon over and over and over again. Sacrificing whatever you have to to keep that disgusting, self-destructive thing alive inside yourself. Many of us, I think, as modern believers in the Western church have something secret living in the basement of our hearts. Something that is out to get us. Something that Jesus would describe as thorns. What does Jesus say the outcome is? That you're damned and go to hell for eternity? No, he doesn't take it that far. I think that's probably the natural conclusion if you reject the word forever. Sure. But the immediate consequence is that anytime you are exposed to the word of God, it will feel like nothing is happening because nothing will happen. That dark thing within you will actively work against the word of God and choke it out so that it cannot bear any fruit. And you will be the kind of person who wants to pray and never does. And you'll become the kind of person who knows they should read their Bible but has zero interest in doing that. Why? Because prayer and the scriptures would identify that thing that you don't want to look in the eye and would force you to deal with it. 
And so what do you do? You talk as if you're just a day or two away from putting that faith into practice. It's always 24 to 72 hours out on the horizon. As soon as things calm down at work, as soon as we get back on vacation, as soon as we go back on vacation, as soon as the kids are out of school, as soon as the kids go back to school, as soon as we're back in town, as soon as I get on the plane, I'll use these hours, I'll use that time, I'll get up early, I'll stay up late, but we just don't. And it's not because we're passive. I don't even think the strength of our sinful nature is enough to lead us away from Christ like that. It's because we have fed something that is eating us alive, that is actively working against us. I don't just want to pick on men, but let me just identify the elephant in the room. The number of times that as an elder in a local church, I sit down with young men, married or not, who eventually, after describing all of their problems, finally say, oh, and by the way, I've been looking at pornography and masturbating three times a day since I was 12 years old. They finally say it, and you go, oh, that's the dragon that you think is no big deal, that you've been telling yourself, well, I've got it on a chain, so really I'm the one in control. When in reality, every time you come up against a major life decision, an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to follow Jesus and take another step, the dragon roars, you bow the knee, and do whatever you have to to keep that thing alive. Even if you hate it. This is the key. Even if you hate it, you still feed it. You feed it because if you stopped feeding it, you're afraid that eventually you might open the door to the dungeon and let somebody else see it. And then what would people do? You see, this is where sin takes root, And then it bears shame in our lives, and that shame drives us to cover it up until it kills us. Jesus says it's very possible, common even, one of the three different ways that you can misunderstand the word of God is to have bred and fed and maintained this thing in your spirit that is destroying you to the point that even God's word gets choked out before it has a chance to bear any fruit. And then finally, there's the good soil. Jesus ends the story with the simplest part of his explanation. He says that these are the ones sown on good soil. They hear the word, and what do they do? They receive it because they can. They they bear fruit. They hear it, receive it, they bear fruit, and what happens then? One of them bears fruit 30 times, one 60 and one 100. This is what's available to us. This is what we can become if we're hard, if we're shallow, if we've fed and grown this thing that's destroying us. We've self-deceived to the point that we think we have something under control that's actually mastered us from the inside. We can become fertile soil, but we can't assume that we are. That's the point that Jesus is making. Again, he's not saying, I want to confuse you so that you walk away. I want to offend you so that you want nothing to do with me. He's saying, let me just tell you about yourselves. You've been down here on this earth for thousands of years. You've been building civilization. You've been solving problems. You've been studying stuff and theory crafting and coming up with new ideas and telling each other stories. And you've built this whole thing. And still, the only three ways you can be without me are too hardened, too shallow, or self-deceived. So that's what he's doing in the boat. That's what he's saying. He's looking at this incredibly diverse crowd of thousands of people. And he's saying, some of you, this seed is bouncing right off. And I can see it in real time. Some of you, the seed is there, and these disciples, they're going to be pumped for you. And then three weeks from now, you're going to go away, and we're never going to see you or hear from you again. Some of you may even go all the way to the point where you begin to preach against me and and warn people off from my church and who I am and what I'm about because you think that you had an inside view on how really corrupt and wrong and dirty these things are when in reality, you were here for about three weeks, and then you walked away. And some of you, you look great, you look like fertile soil, thorns are cut off at the surface of the ground, nobody else has any idea. 
but I want you to know that I see the root, and nothing's going to change until that root comes out. Nothing. And in the same way that I encouraged some of you who may be feeling hardness in your heart to come into the loving and caring and expert hands of the farmer, I would encourage those of you who are shallow to do the same. He can break through any amount of bedrock in your life until the earth of your soul, until the word bears fruit, and the same for those of you who have maintained a root of wickedness and evil in your heart. You're not going to beat it on your own. Confessing it, sure, it's a good step and you should. Shedding light on it will only help weaken that root, but you can't pull it out by yourself. You need the farmer to get his hands in the dirt, and he will, and he will tear that thing out, and it will be removed from you and gone. And then, in that gaping hole, that wound that feels like it's going to crush your soul for eternity, he will plant the seed of God's word, and something will grow for the first time in a long time in your life. This is the hope of the gospel. Jesus is not just here to call out sinners. He says again and again, I did not come primarily to condemn you. I came to let you know that you're condemned. And here's the key. You want out? Come to me. Come to me. Let me love you. Let me love you back to life, back into shape, back to where you're malleable and tilled and soft and healthy and there's nutrients and light and water. I will do that work, Jesus says. But only I can do it and then the seed will be planted and the sky's the limit. 30, 60, 100 times, Jesus is trying to say you can't imagine what the word of God will do if it just makes contact with a heart that is ready to follow. So, will you do that? Will you be honest with yourself about where you are today? Will you be honest that maybe there was a day when you were fertile ground, when your heart had been tilled to the point that it was ready, and yet you've become hardened with time? You've become hardened as others have hurt you. You've become hardened as people have been out to get you, maybe even in a church setting. Maybe you would say that as you've looked around and you've had more and more kids and life has gotten busier and busier and life's moved faster and faster, that you have become shallow, that your practice of faith looks like bursts of growth and then nothing for a long time and then bursts of growth and nothing for a long time, but you're never penetrating below those few inches in your faith. Well, maybe you're ready today to finally tell the truth about what's going on in your spirit, that thing that you've been harboring and growing, you've been breeding in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit. No one can see it because you keep those thorns trimmed down to the ground constantly, but the root is there, and when the seed arrives, it does nothing, and you know exactly why. Jesus is here today to say, you can be tilled up. You can be made new, and the seed that he will plant in you of his word will bear fruit that you can't comprehend. So I pray that you'll open yourself to Jesus, to his word, and to his way, and to life that never ends. I want to pray that for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the razor's edge, Jesus, with which you approach our hearts and minds. The church is about the easiest place in the world to come and fake it. And I don't think there's a way around that for us other than that we have to be confronted by your truth and at the same time, God, one hand holds the knife that cuts us to our hearts and the other holds out your mercy and says that you will heal the cut that you've created that leads to growth, that leads to life. I pray, God, that you give us courage today to be honest with ourselves and with each other as we approach our life groups this week and we have an opportunity to confess and be honest with where we've been and what we've been carrying, God, would you give us the, the courage and the tact to handle that well and to confess and to be honest. I pray, God, that we would be communities of grace and mercy that would reflect your mercy back to one another, that we would be forgiving and kind without compromising your good standard for justice. And I pray, God, that individually in each of us you would grow our faith and remind us that you're not just a good teacher, you're not just a great rabbi, but you instruct our spirits in the way of life. And you've called us into eternity with you. 
So give us hope today, God. Remind us of the goodness of your mercy and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.